Well, we're going to be in Mark 4 today, so if you want to go ahead and open up your journals or your Bible or whatever you have today, open up to Mark 4 and begin by, I'm going to begin by reading this text and then we'll get into it. We're going to read verses 1 through verse 34. I'll begin. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seed, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, Everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear... Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones that sown on the rock, sown on, are sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns, They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? And not on a stand, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises day and night, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not why. The earth produces by itself first the blade, 
then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground, is is the smallest of all the seeds in the earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than any larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Well, um, it's a long text this morning, but... um, we're going to jump right into it. So, um, Coldness said that the Gospel of Mark, um, it's not really in a rigid chronological order. Um, it's, and so, what Mark has done here is he's taken several of Jesus' teachings and he's grouped them together. And so, I think it's going to be really helpful for us this morning as we go through this text to ask why. Why has he grouped them that way? And so, there's really a direction or a narrative that's going through all of this grouping, and I think there's something that Mark's communicating that's important for his readers and important for us today. Um, so really, you think of the, what's going on in the Gospels, and I think here too, as we've gone through Mark, it's really action-oriented, and it's kind of like, it's kind of like I, I don't remember if Colton used this illustration, it's like a photo album. You, know, you go on a trip, and then you stick a bunch of photos in there, and you don't put the photos in chronological order, they're just little snapshots of what's been occurring in Jesus' life and his ministry. And so, um, why did Mark put these here? What's he intending to communicate to us? So uh, chapter 4 contains one of the major teaching sections in Mark. Uh, we see another big teaching section in chapter 12, which we'll look at, uh, or, or sorry, chapter 13. Um, and so why does Mark place these parables here? Um, we, right here, we see a large crowd gathering near the Sea of Galilee, and at a place that many believe now is, is what they call the Cove of Parables. Um, which was, was a small cove where Jesus would have gone out on a boat and the, and the land rises like an amphitheater as the crowd was pressing in on him. He would have gotten into the boat and then gone out and the water worked as a natural amphitheater for Jesus to teach. And he would have been anywhere from 50 to 100 feet uh, from all of those who were gathered. And in Matthew, uh, in fact, um, Matthew 13 account, this actually says that this is the same day that Jesus was accused of being possessed by Satan. And he was accused of his family by being crazy. So um, I don't know about you, but that seems like it's probably kind of a long day for Jesus. Um, So here he is now in a boat, and he's teaching possibly one of the largest crowds that he's ever experienced. So he's looking out and seeing a crowd, and and, um, he sits down in a boat, which is the traditional posture for a rabbi as he teaches. And he begins to speak to hundreds of people from a variety of religious, political backgrounds, social Stat, uh, stat, statuses and life situations. And with Jesus' arrival, the kingdom of God has intruded into the world. And we see Jesus' authority either uh, re- it revealed, uh, people either, re- when it's, his authority is revealed, people either received him or rejected him. That's what Colton said last week, right? We they receive his authority or they reject his authority. 
And so opposition to Jesus is beginning to increase as we go through this narrative in Mark. Um, and we see scribes coming from Jerusalem, and they're questioning him. And even in the last chapter, they were, dis- they were conspiring to destroy him. I don't know how they're going to go about that. Uh, but, um, you know, if somebody says that the Lord of Sabbath, you should probably think twice about whether you want to destroy them. Uh, even Jesus' own family here, um, we see, is not really even in his crowd. He, they're more on the outside of his crowd. And so Jesus even says that, His family are those who do the will of God. And yet at the same time, he's calling an inner circle of disciples. And they consist of fishermen and tax collectors and sinners and zealots. And so because of what we've seen in chapter 2 and chapter 3, Mark seems to be looking at the variety of responses to who Jesus has proclaimed himself to be. And um, I think he's, why, why did people, you, I guess the question maybe for us is, why do the people that you think would like Jesus hate him and want to destroy him? And why did the people who you thought would never come near him are actually those who are closest to him? And why are the people you think would understand Jesus not getting it, and those that you think would never get it, they're understanding him? Um, and so here we have four parables, or maybe three parables. I'm not sure if the lamp considers, is considered a parable, but um, I think it's kind of an illustration explaining something. But we have a parable of a sower and seeds and soil types, and then we see a description of a lamp and some measuring going on, and we see um, a parable of a sower who sleeps, and then we see a parable of a small seed that grows up to be the biggest plant in the garden. And so through them, Jesus is trying to show us the nature of the kingdom of God, what it's like, how it comes. And so Mark's response to the question is that he puts these parables together to teach something about what God's kingdom is like. And he's explaining to his readers that the kingdom has, in fact, come. And I think Jesus here is preparing his disciples for things that will come in the future. Things they couldn't even imagine. And Jesus has entered into the world and is establishing and building a new kind of kingdom. Something something unknown to them. And so he's preparing them. Um, And so... Uh, really quickly, a parable, for those of you who don't know, um, a parable just simply means putting alongside, to compare, um, to gain new understanding. And dr- Jesus would use stories and draw from common experiences. And it's not really the same. A parable is not really the same as an allegory where um, a story has a series of pictures and then every de- detail is correlating to some kind of corresponding truth and has like a coded message for each part of the story, like a cryptogram. It's not quite like that. Um, And so parables really have one central uh, meaning to them. And so I think this can be helpful as we approach these. Um, And so Jesus really has a way of turning ears into eyes here. You know, uh, not long ago, we went to a 
a park where they had one of those four, is it 45, I don't know, or one of those rides where you get on and it blows your hair around, you know, and you put the glasses on. Is that five, 40? <laughs> is that 3D or 40? 5D? Is it 5D, really? You smell stuff, I don't know. Uh, and so, you know, it has the, it's like the thing you get the guns and you're shooting the little, I don't know, robots and stuff. And so it was one of those 3D, 4D rides. And um, I, re- I really enjoy those because I like the, uh, the experience of the 3D glasses. And so, unfortunately, we, we had done that before. And we went in there and, and said, hey, we want to do this one. And we're, can we get the glasses? And they said, oh, it's broken. Sorry, the, the 3D is not working, but you can go ride the ride. And you don't, you don't need the glasses. And I said, well, well can, can I try them anyways? And I go, well, I guess. <laughs> so I took the glasses. I just wanted to see if it was working. I thought maybe they were um, mistaken, but they weren't. And so when I got in and got on the ride, what happened was, um, was uh, the ride started up, and I'm supposed to be shooting stuff, but as the ride started, um, you know, the 3D image takes two, two uh, images and it overlays them to create the perception of depth, depth. And so what I was seeing was actually just this. And, and I'm shooting with one eye because the glasses uh, weren't revealing the other image, and it obscured the other image. And so I was only seeing with one eye. I only seen half of what I was supposed to see. And so I took the glasses off because they weren't working. So um, I hope that's none of us in here this morning. But the reality is that it could be. Jesus is, through the stories, he's turning our ears into eyes. He's painting a picture of something for us to understand. What is God's kingdom like? And how do we, how are we a part of that? What is our role in that? What is Jesus' role in his kingdom? And so Mark starts off with this parable of the sower. And I think this parable, in fact, if we just look in verse 13, this this parable is unique. And why Mark put it first, I think, is is clear in verse 13, because it says, um, Jesus said, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And so somehow... This understanding, this parable was the key to understanding the parables in the future. And so, as they were with him, he explained the meaning of the parable. And actually, you know, I just told you that a parable really was, has one main central point, and it's not allegorical, and so you don't take every aspect of that and then translate it uh, into a, a, a correlating meaning. But unfortunately, that's what Jesus did here. He interpreted this more allegorical than he would a parable. And so as we look at the interpretation of this, we use Jesus' own interpretation. That would be the wisest thing to do for us today. But he says, um, it, I think the, the theme of all these here really is, um, if you look in verse 3, and look in verse 9, what does it say in verse 3? What's the first word we hear as Jesus begins to teach, listen, behold. And then look what he says in verse 9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In fact, the word listen is mentioned eight times just in this parable. And throughout the rest of these parables that we're looking at today, uh, hearing or listening is referenced 12 times. And so Jesus is making a statement about hearing here, and this statement here actually has a double meaning. He's not just saying that you listen and you hear. Um, Anyone can hear Jesus, 
but not everybody hears Jesus. Um, He's drawing a connection between hearing and what this parable is about, the heart. And if you listen and can hear, you'll understand. And if you understand, your life can be different. It will change as a result of the things that you hear and understand. And if we do not hear God's Word, we can't benefit from it. And so Jesus is saying, some hear and some don't. And so to explain that they hear and some hear and some don't, he gives us this parable. And so we have a sower. He goes out casting seed on various types of soil. And in ancient farming practices, um, they kind of did like a broadcast sowing, um, just scattering the seeds with kind of a practice motion. There's really two ways of farming. You, you, could, you could plow, uh, you could scatter the seed and then plow it, or you could plow it and then scatter seed. But really back then, they, you know, plow was more of a euphemism. They didn't have plows like a stick and you poke the seed in the ground or drag it along and stir up the dirt. And so you know, here we have, the, I think, the lesser preferred method of just throwing it out and hoping it's growing. And so, um, not, he, he didn't just throw the seed on the fertile soil here. He throws it on the rocks. Um, he throws it on the soft soil where it's sure to grow, but he throws it on the path. He throws it on the, on the perimeter of the field. And, and, a, and he throws it in the shallow ground where there's no depth and there's rocks. You know, just walking around. Here, there's a rock. Take some seed. There, bush. Maybe you'll grow something, and just tossing it about. And so, Jesus identifies the sower as, as God. In Matthew, in the correlating uh, passage in Math, Matthew 13, um, he's identified as the Son of Man. And so, he's sowing without any restraint. He's just casting out indiscriminately, everywhere. Throwing around. And so he's, you might ask the question, I don't know if any of you planted a garden, but um, we planted a garden. I say we, Holly did. I'll talk more about that later. Holly, my wife, is the gardener in our family. And, and you know, you don't just go around throwing the seeds. So what's, what's wrong with God? Why is God just throwing seeds around everywhere? Um, doesn't he know how to farm? What's wrong with him? And so the seed is identified as the word of God and Luke and here and in Matthew it says it's the word of the kingdom. And so what we see here that follows is three, well, four hearts. We have really two categories of hearts, though. We see three unreceptive hearts, three hearts that don't receive the seed. And so let's look at verse, um, well, I'll be jumping around here, but verse 15, if you want to go there, we see it says he sowed. Uh, in verse 4, it says, He sowed some seed, as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. And in verse 15, he interprets that, and he said, Then these seeds are the ones sown along the path where the word is sown. And when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And so you think of the path as a place where people would have walked along in order to get various places in the field, and it was compacted, tough soil. Um, you throw it out and the seed's just going to bounce off the soil and lay there, right? It's out and open for, for anybody that wants to grab it. Um, and, you know, we, we actually, Holly had bought some nets for, <laughs> we had these, they're beautiful, white nets. I 
I don't actually like them, but she did, she did put some nets over our garden that kind of look like a big trash bag laying in the yard, but they have a purpose, and the purpose is to guard the seeds so nothing gets in it. But you know, in this story, we've got birds coming down and stealing the seed, and Jesus says that this, the birds are Satan. They represent Satan. He immediately comes and he takes them away. And so, what he's saying here is not, he's not talking about farming. He's talking about the condition of a heart that is so hard that when the Word of God is sown, it isn't received at all. It bounces off. Maybe there's no interest in it. Maybe they're just indifferent to the things of the kingdom of God. Indifferent to who Jesus is. Indifferent to God Himself. Don't care. They could be even oppositional, tough-minded. Uh, they've got like a kingdom deafness. You just... Gary, throw it all at me. <laughs> um, you know, and this is serious though. I mean, right now, everything that we've read so far, there's a possibility, I think the reality that Satan comes to steal the truth of God. He is doing it right now. He hates this message. He hates this word. He doesn't like it when you have a conversation about what God's doing in your life. He wants to steal that away. He doesn't like it when you sit down and read a book that's going to point you towards God. He wants to rob and steal and destroy, and he will do that in any way he can. He'll use the most subtle distractions. Because if you don't receive the Word of God, it cannot go into the heart and do its effective work. So then he goes on to another seed. He says, the other seed fell on the rocky ground. And he says, these, in verse 16, he says, these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the Word, immediately receive it with joy. Then they have no roots in themselves, but enter for a while. Oh, sorry, endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And so they, there's even more receptiveness in this, in this heart. It, they actually receive it. And there's even joy. There's an emotional response to receiving the message of the kingdom. And so we see, we've actually seen these responses we've gone through Mark. But what Jesus is saying here is that the word doesn't sink in deep enough to develop roots. The ground is shallow. There's an, immersion, an emotional or a superficial response, but there's only a partial commitment to the reality of the kingdom of God. So then when this person's faced with real opposition, and it's actually going to cost them in order to act upon the word of God, what do they do? They fall away. They stumble. Actually, the Greek word that we get our English word scandalized from, they fall. It's offensive to them. In the same way that you, when you see a scandal, you want to distance yourself from it. That's not me. It becomes offensive and they reject it. And so, you know, we see... Um, a surface level change, but no real authentic faith here. 
And then this very much reminds me of the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, um, who asked, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? And what did he tell him? Sell everything you have. You've done all these other commandments. Sell everything you have. And what did he do? He walked away. Walked away disappointed. He had an interest, but walked away from the king. And so then he moves on to another seed that fell among the thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And in verse 18, he says, These are ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and prove it unfruitful. And so these are those who um, receive the word of God and even something begins to develop as a result of embracing or receiving it. It's, they have a hospitable nature to the seed that's sown. And growth begins, but then what happens? That growth is choked out. It's same word used for suffocate. It's suffocated. It's drowned out. It's overwatered. And, and he mentions actually two two thirds. I'm sorry. Two specific things here. He says it's choked out by deceitfulness of riches and the desire for things. And so Jesus is actually saying it's not just riches that are what chokes the word. It's not. It's not just. Things. It's the deceitfulness of those riches. It's what they promise. They promise life. They promise fulfillment. And yet, it's elusive. They lead you away from the one who has life itself. And so, then he mentions also being preoccupied with things. or And actually, actually the... Um, yeah, oh, the, the, what is it? The, sorry, I lost my place. Uh, the desires for other things. The deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. And you know, um, I mean, it's so easy, I think. We can walk away from here or throughout the week and we find so many things. I mean, my mower, I need to work on my mower. Um, I, the water heater's going out, I know. I know I'd get, get the water heater going out. Um, uh, my chainsaw quit working. Then my other chainsaw quit working. Now I've got dead limbs from the freeze. And, it, you know, we, we can find preoccupation and the Word of God as a result of those things. The responsibilities that we have can be choked out. Even the simplest things can choke the Word of God. And so, I think something to, about this soil is that um, there are not... This soil is not producing real fruit. In fact, we're going to see in a minute the other receptive soil. Um, each of these three soils that we've seen, uh, they, they increase in receptivity to the seed or the Word of God, but they bear no fruit. There is no fruit in them. In fact, we kind of have a mirror image. What we have is we have uh, inhospitable soils that become increasingly receptive, and then we have the mirror image of the opposite of that, where then we have hospitable soils now that become, have increasing degrees of fruitfulness and abundance. And so he says in uh, verse 8, he says, And the other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. 
He says, but those are those who are sown on good soil. And the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. And they bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And so these are those who receive the kingdom. They receive the message of Jesus. But what's different about this soil? I, and I think there's something, a warning here for us that it says good soil. And I don't want to make sure that we, we don't think that there's something about the soil that's good that causes growth. It has nothing to do with the quality of the soil. Um, in fact, in here, it's the seed that has the power to bear life. We're going to see that later on as we get to the other parables. And so, um, when, when this seed receives the soil, it says there's actually um, the three Greek pre- present participles here. It, it's a persevering action that happens. They hear and they continue hearing. They accept and they continue accepting. And they bear fruit and they continue bearing fruit. And so a heart that receives and welcomes the Word of God produces a fruit that's entirely disproportional to what you would expect. It produces an abundant fruitfulness. And that fruitfulness is going to be revealed at harvest. And a good harvest by, by most is considered to be like a 1 to 10 or a 10 to 1 ratio. But a hundredfold is really seen at one time, I think, in the Old Testament And it's referred to as a sign of God's blessing. Only God can produce a hundredfold harvest. No one else can. And so he moves on to the next uh, parable or illustration, which is a lamp. And so I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. And then I'm going to come back and just talk about some overarching themes. Um, the lamp, he says in verse 21, and he said to them, is a lamp brought in to, pe- to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret to, except to come to light. If anyone has ears, let him hear. You know, recently, I, I don't know, how, did anybody lose power the other day? We have a few, I know some of you guys did, lost power and, you know, what's the first thing we did? Well, luckily, uh, we have all our, our lighters, and, and we have this, we know where the lighters are <laughs> most of the time. You ever have the lights go out, and then you don't know where the lighter is? And you're reaching around the house. Well, and we've also got this cabinet full of candles, and so we went, we got the candles, and we lit some of the candles, and what did we do? We put it under a desk. And we didn't do that. Now, Jesus is using obvious, now we put it up on the bookshelf. We put it up on the counter. And so Jesus is saying something really obvious here. Why is he saying this? Everybody knows you don't put a candle under a basket. Why would you put a candle under a basket? And so I think the question we've got to ask here, when, when you look at Scripture and you see the lamp of God here, and actually through the Old Testament, the a light or lamp, God is referred to as the lamp or the light throughout the Old Testament. And In biblical terms, the law of God is the lamp of God. And Jesus is not saying, or or what he is saying, rather, is that this lamp, this lamp, referring to himself, is the lamp. 
In fact, the literal translation of this is not, does the lamp come in, but comes the lamp, or the lamp comes, not to be put under a basket, to be concealed. He's saying, I have not come to be concealed. I have come to reveal. And he, in John 1, 4, is called the light of men. He's the light of the world in John 8. And he didn't come to be hidden forever. He came to penetrate darkness. He came that he might be put up on a stand. And in a house in those days, they would have had a little bowl. And the little bowl would have been pinched so that what you could do is take a wick and fill the bowl with olive oil most likely and then put the wick in there so that it would float in the olive oil and that little pinched area that would hold the wick and so you would light it. And in the house, they would have a place up on the wall which would be like a protruding shelf and you could put it up high where the light would shine into the whole dwelling place. And Jesus is saying, I am the light who has come. And I will be lifted up. I, in John 1, 9, John refers to him as the true light that gives light to everyone. And the reality of the kingdom of God is that, that those who are disciples of Jesus will do the same thing. A disciple of Jesus puts Jesus on display in their life where everyone around them can see the truth of God and the truth of who His Son is, of who He has sent into the world. And they don't conceal Him with a basket. They don't hide Him. And they don't trade Him off for lesser things, for entertainment, or video games, or psychology. We don't conceal who Jesus is. with the coverings that we've made for ourselves, with the coverings that hide us from sin, we don't conceal Him. No, we lift Him up that He might expose, His light might be exposed, rather, to all in our life. And Jesus is saying that light, um, that my light has entered the world and that this light will not be defeated. What is Hidden now is being revealed. It's being made known. And so he says, nothing is hidden except to be made known or manifested. And nothing is secret except to come to light. And whatever is secret now is going to be made known. And whatever is hidden now is going to be revealed. And it may be hidden at the moment, but what he's saying is that the kingdom has come and nothing can quench this kingdom. In the same way that light has no power over darkness to quench it. And so, when the crucified king is resurrected, what is hidden is going to be made known. And the whole world will see his light. And at the last day, when the king is glorified, and he returns, it's going to be fully revealed to the whole world. And his kingdom will be made apparent to all. And he says in verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. 
He's saying, I am the lamp. I am the light, the pure, radiant light of God. And I will be made known and manifest to all the world. What you see now is not as it always will be. And so then he goes on and he says, um, switches over to this um, uh, idea of measuring. And he says, and he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. There's a bit of a play on words in this uh, because Jesus just got done talking about concealing a lamp with a basket or hiding it under a bed. And now he's talking about uh, measuring what you, what, is, um, what you hear, you use it so that it'll be measured to you. And so actually, you have the same idea of the basket here used for measuring. Uh, the basket, um, there was a basket that was used for dry measuring. Its volume was about nine liters. You could put dry measurements like produce in there from a harvest. And so you don't put the basket over the lamp. You don't conceal the light with a basket. Because what he's saying here is when he says with the measure you use it, it'll be measured to you. He's saying that if you conceal my light entirely, I my light will one day be hidden entirely from you. In the same way that you conceal my light, my light will one day be obscured from you. But if you put my lamp on display in your life, and you walk as children of the light, I will put my glory in you, and I will be your life. So whatever you have now of Him, if you lift it up before a dying world, then much more is going to be given to you in the future at the last day. In verse 25, he says, For to the one who has, more will be given. And for the one, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken. And if you cover and conceal and obscure and eclipse the light of Jesus, even what you have now of His light will one day be removed. So you either live by the truth that you hear, or you lose the truth that you think you know. So, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is like a man sowing in a, in a field, and that, that field goes out, or I'm sorry, the seed goes out and produces a harvest of a hundredfold. My kingdom is like a light that is lifted up. It's hidden, but it's being made known. And then he goes on into another story of a sleepy sower. I call him the sleepy sower. And in verse 26, he says, um, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seeds on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and, he sin- and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. But the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. 
But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And I think it's helpful to look at what's exaggerated in the parables because usually there's a comparison, a juxtaposition. And what's, what's exaggerated here is that there's a seed, it sprouts and it grows in the man and he doesn't even know how. Um, the earth produces by itself. So what's the man done here? Nothing, what some of you are doing now. Sleeps and rises night and day. Oh, yeah, that's kind of like when uh, Holly planted a garden. And then what did I do to help out? Slept and <laughs> he slept. Yeah, yeah, she did the work. I did not do that. I'm afraid I can't take credit for our garden. Um, but but now, now I don't think Jesus is saying farmers are lazy. There was a lot of work involved in farming, right? Um, and I'm not saying that Holly's lazy either. Um, but um, what is being communicated here is that the man is passive. Um, if you're a farmer, you know um, that there's a lot of work involved. And so I'm not denying that. But, but the point that Jesus is making is that the power to produce life and grow is not in the farmer. In the kingdom of God, it's not the man who's sowing the seed, uh, sowing the seed that produces the crop. No. The power to produce life and to grow is in the power of the seed. And God grows his kingdom regardless of the efforts of man. And so I don't think this is the same as the other parable. Jesus is giving us different pictures. And the sower here doesn't represent God. I, it, maybe it does, but I, I think that it's, he's referring to the way that his kingdom is going to be carried on. That the seed has gone out, and Jesus is the light. He's been lifted up. He's given the seed. He's given the word. He's pronounced. He's, he's proclaimed the kingdom. And now, disciples eventually carry it on. And they can sow the seed all they want, but they're not going to be able to cause growth. No, it's God. God causes growth. That's the same for us, too. It is God who causes the growth, not man. In the kingdom of God, we play, or at least we don't have the ability to produce life. No, the germ of life is within the seed. I think that's why James 1, chapter 21, it says, Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So the activity of the word of God that produces life in your heart has nothing to do with you has to do with the power of God. The other thing I think that uh, we see in this is that, that growth is absolutely certain. Um, it says the earth, in verse 28, it says the earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain. And the, the word by itself is a Greek word automate. Uh, we get automate from automatically. It bears fruit. You don't have to do anything. You just throw the seed out and it's going to bear fruit. And so Jesus really is... Um, putting his sovereignty on display. Um, and the power of his word demonstrates his absolute authority. Um, the kingdom that he's establishing, it will not grow how people expect it to grow, but it will grow and it will continue to produce a harvest. And once that growing process begins, once that seed is cast out, and begins to grow. It runs its course all the way from blade to harvest. It will not be stopped like light that penetrates 
darkness. God's kingdom is unstoppable. It's going to run its course and come to fruition. And Isaiah spoke of the power of the Word of God. In Isaiah, I don't think I have this on the screen for you, but Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. Let me just read it. You can write that down. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and to the bread eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's kingdom is not reliant on our activity. And I think there's a message for us in that. We don't build God's kingdom. God builds His kingdom. The disciples did not build God's kingdom. Now we are recipients. And we're participants in a way, but we're not the builders. And I think that means that you know, when you are toiling and you don't see fruitfulness in your own life. You don't see fruitfulness in your spouse. Y'all don't look at each other. You don't see fruitfulness in your children. You don't see fruitfulness um, and you just feel like everything's a barren, dry desert in your life. Well, there's rest in that because God is the one who's building His kingdom. God is the one who's bringing growth. And you don't throw seeds out and then go pop some popcorn and sit there and sit in your lawn chair waiting for them to spring up, do you? You don't go and watch the grass grow. You can't see it. It's imperceptible. Jesus is saying, my kingdom, the growth of my kingdom, it seems insignificant. It seems small, but it is growing. And it will produce a full harvest of righteousness. And so with the arrival of this Jesus of Nazareth, God's kingdom has emerged and it's unveiling the mystery that has been hidden for ages. And to those who reject Him, that mystery is concealed. But to those who receive Him, it's partially revealed now. And it will be fully revealed at the day of His second coming. Now, right now it seems insignificant. But it is unstoppable. And it's growing. And the expansion of the king's rule is bringing back, it's bringing life back to a wilderness. It's bringing light into the darkness. And it's going to produce a harvest that he will reap for his own glory. And our last parable here is the parable of the mustard seed in verse 30. And he said, With what? Can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we, shall we use for it? It's like a grain or a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So again, what, what is being exaggerated here or what's being emphasized? And what's being emphasized here is that you have a minuscule the smallest seed. That's not the smallest seed in the earth. Jesus was using hyperbole. Okay, we know there's smaller seeds than that. But 
It's a minuscule, what seems so insignificant to you will become a vast kingdom. It is going to erupt and burst forth from the earth and bear a tree, a structure on which birds can come and find dwelling and habitat and they can flourish and find life. And Jesus really is borrowing from the imagery of the Old Testament. And we know this imagery that in the beginning, life began and life revolved around a tree. But death came as a result of a tree. And then we also know that history is bracketed by two trees. One tree in the garden and one tree in the city of God. And since the day of the undoing of Adam and Eve by a tree, God has been patiently moving through history toward redemption. He's scattering out seeds of promise that would restore the divine life and in a, to a spiritual wilderness. He's scattering out seeds of a kingdom that have a small, insignificant and beginning a man named Jesus, a Galilean, a man from Nazareth. He's homeless. And what does he leave behind for his disciples when he dies and he rises and then he ascends? What does he leave for them? He says, You're gonna, this kingdom is going to be built. Just hear, believe, obey. Well, I don't, if they had told Jesus that, if, or sorry, if Jesus had told the disciples his plan, when they, he said, come follow me. Hey, yeah, I'm going to build a kingdom. Come follow me. Why don't you come follow? Be a part of this kingdom. By the way, I'm going to leave you. And, and I'm not giving anything to you. This kingdom is going to be nothing like you expect it to be. In, fa in fact, the only thing I'm going to give you to build it is a story. Yeah, okay, see ya. <laughs> I mean, how ridiculous that a simple story of a man, a divine man, would be what Paul calls the power of God for salvation. And so, God, when God created vegetation in the garden for Adam and Eve, he, he said that the seeds were to yield seed according to their kind. And that established a catalyst, really, that would spread a lush, vegetation across the earth. But like seeds, Adam and Eve had the same problem. You know, their seed would, would spread according to its kind as well. But the problem was that their seed was corrupted. And behind everywhere they went, they left a stench of rot and blight in a landscape of humanity that had the potential to be a lush paradise flourishing with God's life. And you and I, are their seed, and we're dwelling in the darkness of that legacy. And its corruption has spread everywhere. And our only hope, really, was for a new seed, a new planting, an engrafting that would bring life, and somehow it would be reconnect us to the divine life of God and His rule and His kingdom. And that this very promise was, in fact, the promise that God gave to Abraham, wasn't it? 
In fact, you see the word seed used throughout the Old Testament to refer to offspring. And didn't he promise, I will send you a seed. I will send you an offspring. And this seed is bringing life back to the earth. This seed is going to be more numerous than the sands of the grains of sand on the seashore. It's going to be more numerous than the stars of the sky. And so the word of God has gone out and it is accomplishing its purpose. And Jesus, the seed, the word of God, the seed of God has laid down his life and he's defeated death and he's sprung the grave. And we get to be the stewards of that message of life. And we're called to cast it through the earth. And that seed increases fruitfulness and growing until the day when the Son of Man is going to come with his sickle. And he's going to reap from the earth a fully ripened harvest. And Revelation speaks of that day. In Revelation 14, verse 14 through 16, it says, Then I looked and behold a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put your sickle, put in your sickle, and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Jesus will return at the end of the age to gather up his harvest. And Jesus alone and God alone will get the glory of the growth of that harvest. What seems insignificant in your life, the small things that you do, the small words, the small deeds that are done for the kingdom of God, they're not, they're not ineffective. You just need to believe and obey. Believe. 